With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For decades, economists identified a clear trend when it comes to fertility. The richer a country got, the fewer children it had. Our correspondent digs deep in the data to see why that simple relation isn't quite so ironclad these days. And one factor behind the recent success of Ukrainian forces in the east of the country is some new weaponry. Well, not so new. High-speed anti-radiation missiles actually go back to the Vietnam War, but they still strike fear in radar operators' hearts. First up, though. It isn't often that citizens get to decide on a brand new constitution. But earlier this month, the people of Chile had the chance to do just that. Widespread protests in 2019 over inequality, poverty and threadbare public services led to a vote in 2020 on whether to replace the old constitution. For many, it was an easy answer. That unpopular document dates back to the rule of the country's former dictator, Augusto Pinochet. But when a new draft was put to a vote, it failed, miserably, and there were celebrations in the streets. Where did it all go wrong, and where does it go from here? So this was a once-in-a-generation opportunity to write a new constitution in one of Latin America's most successful and stable economies. Ana Lankas is The Economist's Chile correspondent. That process came about after massive protests against inequality in 2019. And since then, for the past three years, it seemed that Chile was lurching to the left. But on September 4th, when Chileans had to vote in a referendum on whether to approve this new constitution, which was very maximalist and which would have aggressively expanded the role of government in public life, they flat out rejected it. And I know we spoke to you when that referendum was was uh, first approved. Uh, what was in the constitution that they then came up with? So just going back a step, for context, the current constitution was first adopted under a military dictatorship in 1980. And that's kind of seen as its original sin. It lacked democratic legitimacy. But this new constitution put before voters was really polemical. So it had 388 articles, which would have made it one of the world's longest constitutions. and. It enshrined over a hundred rights, more than any other charter in the world. And they kind of ranged from 
social rights, which included health care and housing and education, to slightly weird rights, like a right to culturally appropriate food and digital disconnection in a country that isn't even, doesn't have broadband everywhere. And then other rights were kind of much more onerous. So they included, for example, an unfettered right for trade unions to strike. And the constitution would have also really changed the structure of the state. So it would have debilitated the upper house, created a new justice system, and created autonomous territories for indigenous people. And it would have weakened existing property laws. So altogether, economists estimate that it would have increased government spending by between 9 and 14% of GDP. So it's easy to see then why so many people flat out rejected it, as you say. But I mean, how did something this fanciful get this far anyway? So Chile's constitution has long lacked legitimacy because it was written in dictatorship. And in 2020, almost 80% of Chileans voted in a referendum to have a new constitution written, and the same share opted to have a convention write it. But the problem kind of started with that convention, because only 43% of Chileans actually turned out to vote for the members of the convention, and they ended up not being very ideologically representative. Of the 155 members of the convention, kind of more than two-thirds of those elected were independents, and many of them were actually activists from the hard left. And the average Chilean voter is pretty centrist. So they felt pretty alienated from the start. And the second thing is that the convention was beset by scandals from the start. So on the first day it convened, some far left members shouted over the national anthem being played by an orchestra. Then in September, one member of the convention had to drop out after it turned out that he lied about having cancer. Then later on, someone was voting from the shower on the articles in the constitution and had to be asked to turn their camera off. So there was just one thing after another that led many Chileans to feel dissatisfied with the convention and also distrust the work that was being done in the convention. So what happens now? That draft constitution just goes in the bin. Basically, yeah. Now that the text has been buried... Questions in in the short run are turning to the fate of the ruling coalition. So last year, Chileans voted for a coalition of leftist parties led by President Gabriel Boric, who's 36 years old. And he came to office in March. And the share of people who say they disapprove of him has risen from around 20% when he took office to 56% today. And part of that is because of mistakes the government has made and high inflation and rising crime. But it's also partly because the government was seen as pretty tied up with the work of the convention. So two days after the vote, there was a major cabinet reshuffle in the government. Hoy se marca... And also right after the vote, Borge made a speech in which he said that the most important thing was for Chileans to have a new constitution that united the whole country. So in the meantime, what does that mean for, for him, for his government, for his approval ratings? So it means that he's pretty weak and his government is pretty weak and he will struggle to get things done. Boric's administration put off large reforms to Chile's pension and healthcare system while it waited to see what the constitution would permit. And so the only thing that they've been able to table right now, really the only significant reform has been a tax bill, and that will probably have to be toned down. And then a healthcare bill the administration hoped to put forward in October will now probably also be delayed. When Chileans went out on the street in 2019, when they voted for the members of the convention in 2021, and when they voted for a new constitution to be written in 2020, Their main concerns 
were pensions and healthcare and education and inequality. But today, Chileans are way more worried about crime, which has been rising, and inflation, which is really high. It's 14%. So Boric will have to shift focus. And and more broadly, what does it tell you about uh, Chile's electorate that this went down in flames so badly? Well, it shows that Chileans aren't as far to the left as the convention had hoped. Polls show that most Chileans still want a new constitution. And they're kind of divided about how to write this new constitution, but most of them want another convention to have a go at writing a second draft. And if that new convention starts up, it'll probably be a lot more moderate than the first because the people of Chile have shown that they don't want a hard left vision baked into the state. But it's going to be a tough period for Chile because the economy is in a difficult spot and it will continue to deteriorate until the end of the year. And there's a very difficult global context right now with the war in Ukraine and weakening copper prices and the removal of pandemic era stimulus. And so BCI, a bank, predicts that a recession will start this year and that next year Chile's economy will contract by a little over 1%. So this bodes pretty badly for the leftist parties in government and the president, who's just six months into his administration. He's going to really need the help of his new centrist sidekicks to help him get out of this rut. Anna, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary. In a speech at the Vatican earlier this year, Pope Francis highlighted a coming problem with the size of his flock. He said the declining fertility rates across many countries might lead to a demographic winter because, simply put, not enough babies are being born. In rich countries with declining populations, that fear has driven some policies that nudge citizens to have larger families. But some of the trends behind the conventional wisdom on fertility might not be as straightforward as popes and politicians think. So for a long time, economists thought that as countries got wealthier, they would have fewer number of children. Arjun Ramani is The Economist's global business and economics correspondent. But new evidence is now suggesting that might actually be changing, at least for some people. Before we come to the change, though, why has it been the case that as countries got richer, women had fewer children? One reason is when countries are at lower stages of development, children act as a big support to their parents. This can either be through you know, helping out with the family business or even as a form of social insurance where they help their parents later in life. Another aspect is several decades ago, and, and even in some places in the world now, uh, there are not so many working opportunities for women to the same degree as men. But as that has changed, the opportunity cost of potential mothers' time has grown. 
And both those things mean there's this trade-off now between the quantity and quality of children. And that has been the governing trade-off for families' fertility decisions. And so naturally, as countries got richer then, they moved from the quantity side of that trade-off to the quality side, and high-fertility countries have become low-fertility ones in many parts of the world. So the most famous example of this is Japan, whose population it peaked in 2008 and has since fallen by about 3 million people. And Chinese government won't tell you that its population is falling, but some independent estimates think it already is. But why are you hinting that those assumptions are being called into question? There is a growing body of new research that suggests once countries are already relatively developed, there's a different set of trade-offs that determine how many children a potential mother will have. And that is the trade-off between family and career. So basically, in countries with good family policies or where it's very easy for women to get childcare or social norms support fathers doing much more to share the burden of childcare at home, you can actually reduce the trade-off between having both a career and a family. And so there's a couple of ways to actually look at this in the data that the researchers have tried out. So one standard way that you might naturally expect is, you know, let's look at this across countries. So if you look at this in 1980, it turns out that countries with higher female labor force participation had lower rates of fertility across relatively rich countries. And that's, you know, the standard relationship that we talked about before. But by 2000, that relationship had flipped where higher female labor force participation actually meant a slightly higher rate of fertility, but the relationship was a bit weak. But when you look at this pattern within countries, so within rich countries like America or Britain, this kind of new set of trade-offs becomes much clearer. And so essentially all the data we have then can be explained by those two things, the change in labor force participation by women and the comparative ease with which kids can be raised and then childcare can be shared and all that. This can explain some of it, but there's, of course, a lot of other factors, and they're all changing as well. One example is family policies that governments put into place in order to combat this longer-term decline in fertility rates. So, for example, if you look at South Korea, which has a fertility rate of 0.81, they have basically allowed parents with young children to take an additional year of reduced work hours off on top of an already generous one year of leave. If you look at Hungary, they've actually exempted mothers of at least four children from income taxes for life. This is a particularly controversial example because the Prime Minister Viktor Orban has justified this policy as a way to boost the domestic population without immigration. And more generally, if, if you just look at all the countries in the world, actually the share of countries that have explicitly pro-natalist or you know pro-baby policies, basically, it's grown from about 20% of countries, you know, about 20 years ago to closer to 30% now. So the data suggests to you that those kinds of policy interventions work because certainly the ones tried by Japan in recent years haven't seemed to. Yeah, that's a good point. And some interventions are more effective than others. And so one set of research papers that we looked at found that, for example, subsidized childcare tends to have larger effects than uh, parental leave, which maybe makes a lot of sense because you're doing a lot more for a family by actually paying for them to have childcare. But the biggest effects tend to happen when you have multiple interventions all at once. And by interventions, I don't just mean policy interventions. I also mean supportive social norms, which is something that's much, much harder for governments and for policies to change. So, for example, in countries where you have social norms that support fathers taking on a large share of childcare at home, then it's actually a lot easier for this to happen. 
So if the changes in the data are down to changes that are happening in societies in the world and then they remain robust, then this is going to have a big, long-run demographic effect in the world, isn't it? It could. And, and if it did, that would be very important because more and more countries are seeing slowing population growth and, and some, in, indeed, even declining populations. But I think there are some reasons to be skeptical it will really change the game. I think one aspect of this that matters quite a bit, actually, is the degree of aging in a society. So if you look at the share of population in rich countries that's over the age of 65, it's expected to top 50% by 2050, which is about 20 points more than today. And what that does is it puts a greater demand on caretakers, which makes it, in turn, more expensive to hire childcare. And also as more and more people hire childcare, that also becomes more expensive. So you basically need to make that much more productive in order to make it more widespread. And so robot nannies are a funny trope, but in reality, that's actually something that in Japan, there's a lot of experimentation on that front precisely for this reason. So I think there are uncertainties around the degree to which this turns from a subtle shift to a widespread change. Arjun, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. If you like the crisp style of The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists that you hear on the show. Register now and get a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code intelligence at checkout. Last month, America confirmed what had previously only been hinted at. In recent PDA packages, we've included a number of anti-radiation missiles uh, that can be fired off of Ukrainian aircraft uh, that can have effects on Russian radars and other things. So, uh, It's supplying Ukraine with a kind of missile known as HARM. They've played a role in the offensive in the east and south by giving Ukraine a telling advantage in the air. So HARM, or high-speed anti-radiation missiles, are weapons which are carried by aircraft to defend themselves against surface-to-air missiles. They do this by locking onto and finding and destroying the radar associated with surface-to-air missile systems. David Hembling writes about technology and defense for The Economist. Even if they're not used, just their presence there can force radar operators to turn off their sets and lie low. As a result of that, they've really given the Ukrainian Air Force a lot more freedom than it had to operate. And we've talked to you more and more about the kinds of uh, weaponry that's being deployed here. Are these just an example of of something, some newfangled gizmo that, that Ukraine's got? Uh, No, these actually go back quite some ways. I think some of the missiles in use are actually manufactured about 40 years ago. America pioneered this technique, what they call suppression of enemy air defense, or SEAD, back in Vietnam. That was when they first encountered radar-guided missiles on a large scale. So they developed what they called wild weasel tactics, which is where aircraft were specifically tasked with finding and destroying radar ahead of a wave of attack aircraft. So initially, 
the wild weasels had radar detecting equipment and bombs, and later they developed these special missiles which would home in on radar emissions. And HARM is the latest version of that. It's quite a big beast. It's about 350 kilos and it's got a range of 90 miles. And it can locate and hit radar systems anywhere within that radius. And it's actually sufficiently advanced so that even if a radar system is turned off, it can remember where it was and home in on its last known location. So these things are battle-tested, well-known, successful? Extremely successful. The latest version of HARM is so effective that uh, they now describe it rather than just suppression of air defence, but destruction of enemy air defence, or DEAD for an acronym. The US forces have used it successfully in Libya, Iraq and former Yugoslavia, and it's really one of the bedrocks of American air power because it allows them to operate in hostile places. But seeing it in Ukraine was quite a surprise because Ukraine operates entirely Russian-made aircraft and they don't have anything that's compatible with harm because it's a NATO system. So it's like trying to use things from two different makes of car. It shouldn't be possible even to physically attach it. So what, these things are duct taped onto these planes? Something like that, yeah. But actually physically attaching is the easy bit. The difficult bit is there's also lots of very complex electronic connections. In normal use, the harm missile would be passing lots of data to the aircraft about what it can see and where. And the aircraft would be passing data from its sensors to the missile and then communicating that to the pilot and the pilot then chooses what to fire the missile at. You haven't got any of that. So they, they seem to have some kind of a cobbled together setup, which looks like it may involve using a tablet computer, using the missile in a very basic mode. So in that sense, it seems like a, another example of, of Ukrainian forces using whatever they can get their hands on and, and using it well. We've got very little hard data to go on, but the White House have said that Ukrainian pilots have employed harm successfully. The Pentagon has approved, I believe, at least two additional shipments of missiles, which is usually a sign that they think it's something useful. With this type of missile, the usual response is that radar and aircraft turns into a game of cat and mouse because the radar operators only turn their radars on long enough just to catch a quick glimpse and see whether there's an aircraft there and then turn them off again. So they, they try not to turn radar radar on long enough to be detected. But if you're not leaving your radar on all the time, it means you're going to miss a lot of what's going on. So even if you never have a missile fired at you, it means it massively degrades the effectiveness of air defence. Now, we also know that Ukrainian air power is being used more. In particular, their Bayraktar TB2 drones, which have been fairly quiet for the last few weeks. We've started to see videos of them destroying targets on the ground. So that suggests the Ukrainians are a lot more confident that Russian air defense isn't able to do its job. David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. 
IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary.